0: Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life Podcast. Now, we're often told we should have clear goals for ourselves. In fact, as we've heard from guests like Mark Efron, Damien Hughes and Grace Laudan in the past, there is a connection between effective goal setting and high performance. The thing is, many of us really struggle with this idea, so I wanted to explore it some more. And I figured if you want to dive deep into a subject, you may as well invite on one of the world's leading experts. So that's what I've done. Today's guest is Emily Belchettis. She's an associate professor of Psychology at New York University, where she runs the Social Perception, Action and Motivation Research Lab, or SPAM for short. Emily and her team have pioneered the scientific investigation of behavioral science and motivation, and their work has uncovered previously unknown strategies that increase, sustain, and direct people's efforts to meet their goals. Emily also explores these ideas in her excellent book, Clearer, Closer, Better, and with us today on the Future Work Life podcast. Now, our conversation starts by examining why materializing goals is crucial to achieving them, before digging into the relative benefits of a narrow focus of attention and applying a wide bracket. Along the way, we discuss how to motivate ourselves to pursue big long-term goals and why, although vision boards can help us to discover our purpose, used in isolation, they can actually be detrimental to our success. Now, I love the way Emily reframes goal setting. I mean, literally, as her work is all focused on the power of our vision. She gives some fantastic practical examples of visual tactics that can help us meet and exceed our goals, all of which help build a toolkit for success. I'm sure you're going to find this conversation fascinating. If you want to find out more about Emily's work, I'm going to put a link to the book and to her lab's website in the show notes. Also, check out the Future Work Life newsletter, in which I'll be writing about the themes we discuss over the coming weeks. One last thing: My book, Work Life Flywheel, is now available to pre-order on Amazon. So, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast over the past eighteen months, you're going to love the book. It features many of the insights I've discussed with the great guests I've had on, and also real-world examples of various people who've become solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, and who've taken the big step to begin sharing their ideas with the world, thinking in public. So. As I said, there's a link in the show notes. The book won't be out until January, but make sure you get in there early and get your copy bagged. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the show. Here's my conversation with Emily Balchettis. Emily, thanks so much for joining me. The obvious place for me to start is to ask what a full English breakfast has to do with goal setting.
1: That is a great place to start. No <laughs> one has ever pushed me, especially with an accent like yours, to define <laughs> what an English, a full English breakfast is. Um, you know, the idea of that, if you take what is a full English breakfast, it's full, right? It, it has all these different elements, they all come together to create something that's really amazing and really satisfying and really filling. But it's not a full English breakfast if you take any one of those pieces uh, and, and try them in isolation. And this, if you just had baked beans like that 's not a full english breakfast that 's just weird, and like uh, roasted tomatoes that 's not a full English breakfast that like is not satisfying, and the same is true with goals. the best laid goals the best laid plans are ones that are all encompassing that have multiple elements that come together in this synergistic way to give birth to, to something that is really unique, really amazing, and very satisfying. So that's the metaphor that I was going for. As we think about yeah. goal setting, we need to think more than about more than just setting the goal. There's so much more to it than that.
0: Yeah. And you talk a, a lot about materializing in your book, Clearer, Closer, Better. I wonder if you could explain what you mean by materializing in this context.
1: Yeah. So really, my, my scientific expertise lies at the intersection of goal setting, but also visual experience. Because when you really dive into the neuroscience and the behavioral science of goal setting, you can see or you can understand that what we see really plays a big role in setting goals in an effective way. So that idea or that concept of materializing is prompting or encouraging us to not just rely on our memory, because for so many reasons, our memories are faulty. We can all think of examples of that, but then there's even more examples that we may not even be aware of. So don't rely on our memory but rely on our visual experience. What we see can nudge or can prompt all different kinds of actions, some that aren't helpful for us, but many that are helpful. So if we take advantage of the power of sight, of what we see, we open ourselves up to a whole host of new possibilities for effectively managing the way we go about trying to accomplish our goals.
0: I'm going to dig into some of those areas. There's some really interesting examples you discussed, which I suppose many of us could relate to, which are to do with physical exercise. Well, actually, in the case you looked at high performance sports and athletics. I wonder if you could talk us through how the literal visualization of a finish line actually provoked better performance from some of the athletes you worked with.
1: Absolutely. That's where a lot of this research has started. So for 15 years we've been, you know, trying to understand how can we help people take advantage of the power of sight to to move more, to be more physically engaged. One of the places that we started was by looking at top performers, like you mentioned. So I I live in Manhattan and New York City. I ventured over the East River to Brooklyn, where there's a really big old armory building, it used to be a military complex. It's now family gym. And so there's high school students who are trying to get in shape for their whatever, for for school competitions. There are new moms that are trying to get back into shape after delivering a child. And then there's other people that are running around this small track too. What I didn't realize is that some of these other people that are running around were actually Olympic gold medalists. <laughs> you wouldn't know it. There's nothing pretentious about them. Of course their bodies look quite different than my bodies, <laughs> my body looks. But nothing really about them would give away that these are incredible athletes except for the fact that somebody had tipped me off and introduced me to some of these really amazing people. And quite simply I just asked, "What do you look at when you are racing to the finish line?" Now, I thought my intuition as a non-Olympic runner and probably not even a very good runner, was that they're probably looking all around. They probably have this like amazing sense of visual space and acuity. They know where they are relative to their competition. And even though they can't really see who that competition is, if they're up ahead of the pack, they somehow know like their number one competitor is like right here and other people are further back. Like, they probably have this amazing visual map going on. And I couldn't have been more wrong what they told me was that they really have like blinders on. They are so focused on a goal for many of them when they're running, you know, short distances that like might literally just be the finish line the whole way, or they might set sub goals like the end of this straightaway or the, the, the round, the, the edge of the curve, or if they aren't top of the pack, it might be the person in the blue shorts that's up ahead and they are just focused on that, on that target until they hit that target. And then they set a new target. And then they're just focused on that. They're, they aren't paying attention to the periphery. So I thought, okay, that is what they're doing that's what these amazing highly successful athletes are doing and it is not my intuition that's what would be happening maybe it's not other people's intuition either and maybe it's in fact something that we can teach people a visual strategy that we can teach people to use that might improve their own exercise experience they don't need to be trying to win a gold medal to reap the benefits of this it might just help them to meet their own health and fitness daily goals better so we did we've over the last 15 years we have done so many different kinds of experiments to test whether that's the case First of all, can we teach people to do what these Olympic athletes do? The answer is yes. And does it improve their experience exercising? The answer is yes. So for example, in one of our first studies, we taught people, we explained to them, nothing magical, nothing tricky. We just explained what those Olympic athletes had explained to me. We said, choose a target up ahead. Imagine there's a spotlight shining just on that target. And that's all that's illuminated. Keep your eyes focused on that target till you hit it and then set a new goal. We compared that focused experience to natural attention. We said, let your eyes wander the way that they normally would. You might notice a target up ahead, like the finish line, but you might notice the things on the side as well. So we just encouraged them to do whatever comes naturally. What we found was that those that we encouraged to focus their visual frame, their visual experience, they moved 23% faster when they were engaged in a challenging physical activity, and they said that it hurt 17% less on this medical scale of perceived exertion and and pain. The distance they were running was the same. The physical activity was exactly the same for all of the people, but their performance improved and their subjective experience also got better. So we were so amazed by that, right? It cost nothing. It was something that we could just use normal everyday words to teach them to do in about five minutes, they could implement it. And it had this drastic impact on their performance in that moment. And we followed that up because of course, nobody's health goals are going to be fully satisfied by running a little bit faster one time. Of course. Health goals require sustained commitment and and engagement in the same kind of tactic over time. In other studies, we brought people in, we explained this focused strategy, and then we asked them if we could look at their data from their fitness trackers over the next week. And what we found is that people who had been taught this focused strategy, they take more steps in the week that follows. They go out for walks and runs more often they're traveling farther. So any of these sort of metrics of does it improve the quality of exercise? Are they moving more if we've taught them this strategy, even when we're not there?
0: Wow. So and so that's the kind of example of how it can affect your physical performance. I'm wondering if we translate that maybe into certain goals we might have around our work. So, you know, I'll focus on myself for a moment. So I am writing a book at the moment. And I've got certain targets I need to hit for myself, a number of words and you know, I'm writing each week or certain sections that I'm writing. Is there some way to use these types of techniques to improve my ability to hit those targets or exceed my expectations around those targets?
1: Yeah, absolutely. In this study of exercise, we are we wanted to understand why. Like, why is this working? How is this working? And what we found is that really narrowed focus of attention contracts people's perception of distance. That distance that looked maybe a little bit too far away for somebody to sprint to or a little bit too far away for me to keep walking to looks smaller. That's what the narrowed focus of attention is doing. It's shrinking that that perception of space. It's inducing a visual illusion, if you will. Mm. And when something looks easier to do, then we're more likely to do. So if you take that idea as applied in this case to exercise and physical distance and expand it out there, this work has many more implications. So time, for example, time is another dimension or another form of distance that can get in the way of us meeting for these for big goals that are really important. They're often not accomplished in a single day, right? You're writing a book. That's I, I wish you the best of luck in accomplishing that in a single day, but I suspect it might take you longer than that. And that and sometimes that can be the problem because if you got a book deal that says like in 12 months, send in your manuscript or somebody has like a promotion on the horizon, they're working towards getting their boss to put them up for the the next level of promotion. That might be something that they need to work on every day. There needs to be an action that's taken or every other day, but it might not pay off for a year or a Mm -hmm. year and a half. And that can pose a challenge, right? Because It's making a choice today that would be challenging. It might be giving up on a temptation like, oh man, I'm so tired. I would rather just take a nap or I'd rather watch television than write another couple pages or put in an extra hour at the office. Um, And so the challenge is trying to connect my choice today to something that may not pay off for another year from now. And that distance, that temporal distance, it's also a form of psychological distance. Like, I'm not quite sure what a year from now looks like. So how is what I'm doing today actually going to be relevant to that time in the future? That's the challenge, right? So if that narrowed visual focus helped our exercisers see physical space as more contracted and make it seem more possible to hit that goal, we were thinking, like, maybe you can do the same thing with time. Maybe there's a way to connect My experience right now, my choice today with this distant future that otherwise seems so far away that I've got like tons of time to like to do the thing I need to do to get that promotion. But we need to contract that space. And maybe that will help people make choices today that'll increase the odds of payoff um, in the distant future. So, long-winded explanation. But let me make this a little bit more concrete. There's an amazing researcher, Hal Hirschfield, who's at the University of California, Los Angeles, and he's done some great work looking at that. contracting time and getting people to make choices that can help in the distant future. And we, we, we leveraged his scientific studies to do a case study with members of my own um, team and students that I was working with. All of these people were in their 20s. They were almost ready to graduate from college. They all had jobs to pay their college tuition and, and living expenses. And I asked them, are you saving for retirement? They're like 20, right? What do you think they said? <laughs> no. <laughs> all 60 of them said, "No, I'm not saving for retirement. I don't even have my first job yet. I'm not saving for. I don't have my first like career job, right? They all had like part-time jobs." So, they all could have been saving some money for retirement, but none of them were. And when I asked why, the most frequently offered answer is, "That seems so far away. <laughs> I've got mm-hmm. a lot more I'm dealing with now than that person who's going to get this money from me when I'm retired." But that's a problem, right? Because all kinds of economists would say saving just a small amount sooner is going to pay off for retirement because of the way that compound interest works. So it's the same challenge here is that these 20 year olds need to make a choice today that seems so disconnected from this far off future. And yet they would be so much better off if they did make that small sacrifice, a relatively small sacrifice today, and and they'll reap the benefits later on. So what we did was to try to contract that space and make that distant future seem more relevant to the here and now is that I took a picture of their face. I took a picture of an older person as well, famous television stars like Betty White, or other people like Maya Angelou, successful older individuals, I morphed their faces together. So that my 20-year-old students might get a sense of what they, who they would be in these retirement years, mm-hmm. they saw themselves with whiter hair, more wrinkles, a little bit more sagging jawline. Most of them were freaked out and horrified by, by that visual. One of them said, "I think I look pretty good." But what that did was make it concrete. It brought that that like vast future a little bit more relevant, made it more concrete. It materialized that yeah. future self and and they spent a couple minutes just thinking about what would you be doing what will this person be doing what will retired you be doing in these years and then i said now what do you think about retirement do you do you think you'll start saving for retirement and 55 out of 60 of them said yeah i get it i get it i'll start i think i'll start saving i'll try to start saving for retirement that's the challenge right is that we have to make choices that might be challenging today that require sacrifices today that may not pay off until far into the future But that's what we need to do, right? To meet some of these biggest goals that we have. What are the tactics that we have? Well, materializing is one that you've already brought up. And that was part of this experience is that I showed them what they might look like when they were older. What does that do? It makes that space smaller. They can get a sense of like how today's choices are connected to that distant future. And it makes it a little bit easier than to make the sacrifices because it doesn't seem so foreign or abstract or remote or useless.
0: Yeah. And what about specificity? Because that's something else, isn't it, that tends yeah. to deliver better results. I think there, there tends to be that, and they actually talk about visualization. I think there's it's sometimes an often mocked idea, isn't it, that you might visualize your future and look at the positive side of it. And I suppose that this is, there's two questions in here. First of all, how can being very specific about what your objectives are help you achieve them? But there's a sort of follow on and they're connected. But I'm interested in this idea of foreshadowing failure, because the other thing about visualization is it tends to be it's like affirmation in a sense often. It's a here is the positive future for which you know, I can picture myself within. And that's what it's going to appear. But actually, there's, there's some evidence that actually thinking about things not happening or going quite to plan can actually be equally or beneficial in a different way. Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You put so many really interesting and important elements of goal setting on the table here. And I'll try to break them down and give quick answers so that we can get to your other comments, too. One of the things that you're talking about is visualizing and the power of visualizing. And you said it it can get mocked. Yes, it can. Um, But for a lot of people, they really believe in that. There's... The idea of vision boards or dream boards is a very popular strategy for motivating oneself. The idea here, if you're not familiar with those terms, is almost like scrapbooking, cutting out visual icons, materializing where you would like to be in the future, maybe finding some phrases and putting them all together on one page and then hanging that, displaying that somewhere where you'll see it every day as a way to remind you and to motivate you about, you know, what your big life dreams, life goals are, what your visions for yourself might be. A lot of people do that and they do it for their personal life, but they also do it for business as well. There was a really interesting survey done by TD Bank of 500 small business Owners, entrepreneurs, and this is a very popular tactic used for deciding among among these surveyed for deciding whether to start a business in the first place. Three-quarters of people said they use vision boards to decide whether they wanted to start a business in the first place. And Mm. more than three-quarters think that it effectively communicates the goals for the company for other employees. This is popular among all age groups, but it's especially popular among millennials. So some might mock it but many people really believe in it. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong that it does help to figure out what you want to do. And for a lot of people, that can be the challenge, right? Of defining what is it? What is my purpose? What is it that I'm working towards? And that should not be understated, how important that is and how challenging that can be for some people. The problem is, if that's where goal setting stops, science says you're less likely to actually meet those goals than if you hadn't, made some version of a of a vision board in the first place. And why is that? Why could it like not just not be helpful, but actually backfire? And that is because having made that vision board, having figured out what it is that you want to do and and created this visual imagery that puts yourself in that success state, that mental state of success is relaxing we feel good about figuring out what it is that we want to do. We mentally savor or vicariously consume that ideal state. In a sense, we've already put ourselves in that psychological experience of having met our goal. Mm. Oh, look at what my life is going to look like if I X, lose 15 pounds, get that promotion, save another $10,000. Whatever those goals are, having gone through that experience of articulating them, of seeing them, of putting ourselves into that mental spot, that feels good. And we can take a deep breath, right? We relax, we feel more positive. We might get rid of some of our anxieties because we know what we're working towards now and we can see ourselves in it. And in fact, colleagues of mine at New York University have measured what's happening in the body when people do that. When they fantasize about what that dream life will look like, they measured systolic blood pressure and heart rate. So, systolic blood pressure, that's the top number on your blood pressure reading. And of course, it indexes things about your body, but it also indexes things about your psychology. So, that top number, that systolic blood pressure, is a marker of our body's readiness to do something. So, in advance of taking off of the starting blocks and going out, going and sprinting, systolic blood pressure goes up. Before you've even moved, systolic blood pressure goes up. Mm. Or right before thinking about something really challenging, like hard math problems, systolic blood pressure goes up. You're not moving. Your body's not doing anything. But psychologically, you're getting ready to do something challenging. What they found is that when people focused or fantasized about what that ideal life would look like, systolic blood pressure went down as if they're relaxing, as if their body is chilling out and saying, yeah, like goal satisfied. So that is what is happening in our body when we stop the process of goal setting at fantasizing, at dreaming. We increase the odds of actually meeting our goals when we couple that articulation of what our goals are with what you've put on the table, foreshadowing failure, right? That might sound demotivating. If I'm trying to motivate myself, if I'm trying to get excited and pump myself up to do this thing that's like pretty big and challenging and long range plans, how would that be helpful to think about all of the ways, many of the ways that this is going to go wrong, Right? isn't that just going to tell me look at all these obstacles isn't that going to tell me this is super hard and you're uh, and you're like likely to fail maybe but what it also does is help you prepare for worst case scenarios so that when and maybe not even when but if we experience obstacles that we've already thought about them in advance that we're not derailed that we have a plan b at least starting to percolate and then we're not completely thrown off And abandon the process of goal pursuit when we hit that first obstacle. So, that is why, and science says that when we couple that thinking about the future, articulating what our goals are, what are our dreams, and at that same session, that same brainstorming session, start to think about okay, here are the challenges I'm gonna face. Here's what I might do about it if these things come up. Then people are able to persist through obstacles better. They don't throw in the towel at the same rate. Um, There's a great example of Michael Phelps, right? Michael Phelps, incredible Olympic swimmer. In 2008, the first time he was really on the Olympic stage in in a big way, the world is following him because he's about to do something that no other Olympic athlete has ever done in the history of Olympics. He's going to win his eighth gold medal in a single Olympic Games. He had just the 200 fly in front of him to accomplish this. That was like his jam, right? The fly, that's what he's known for. And he just had to cross the pool four times, right? Should have been super easy. He dove into the pool. Instantly, his goggles started to leak. By the time he had just one length of the pool left to go, his goggles were completely filled with water and he was essentially swimming blind. Now, if that happened to me, which it never would because I would never be in the Olympics, I certainly wouldn't be swimming. I would have panicked (laughs) and I would have been done for, right? But not him. Instead, like, this was something that he had foreshadowed. He had he and his coach had practiced this, they had planned for this kind of thing happening, they routinely practiced with his goggles off or his goggles filled with water. And sometimes his coach would rip them off of his head, just as he was about to dive dive in and smash them on the ground. For dramatic effect, I guess he could have just taken them off. But whatever, (laughs) that's what his coach supposedly did. And so he practiced. He had foreshadowed this obstacle. And so when it happened in the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games and like the world is watching him at this moment, he wasn't overcome by anxiety or uncertainty about what to do. He quickly turned to plan B. He started counting his strokes because he knew exactly how many strokes it took for him to get from one end of the pool to the other. He did that. He won that 200 meter fly. He won his eighth gold medal and he would go on to win 15 more in his career. So we might not all find ourselves in an Olympic pool, but I think that's a compelling example of what that what the power of foreshadowing failure can do and how that is an important element of our full English breakfast of goal yeah. setting, right? Having foreshadowed that obstacle might make it seem like meeting our goal is a little bit more challenging than had we not foreshadowed it, but it helps us in that really important moment of when we when we face an obstacle, what are we going to do without being totally thrown off course?
0: Yeah, and the final part of my multifaceted question was about specificity, yeah. <laughs> and you've done a very good job of breaking down the question so far. So that question about specificity, where does that come into it?
1: Yeah, I think you know that's an important element for for maybe a good metaphor or a good phrase is being our own accountant. So we need to be able to track our progress. We need to do that accurately <laughs> to be effective at monitoring how far we've come, how far we have to go, and how much more investment is needed. Mm. So if we are not specific with what our goal is, that sort of wiggle room makes it really difficult for us to accurately track our progress. We won't really know what we're working towards or what are the mile markers along the way to assess whether we are on track or we're behind or we're ahead of schedule if we haven't made it clear what it is that we want to accomplish. You can think about it another way as well. It helps us be, be a good accountant, but specificity also takes what might be that really distant, long, far, maybe abstract goal. Like, I want to have, if I think about it today, am I on track to having a happy life? I don't know, because without being specific about what a happy life means, it's going to be challenging for me to know whether I'm happier or I'm doing the right thing or not. So that specificity, it, it does a good job it's important. It's important for us to be able to do that, to determine our pace in terms of progress, but it also can help reduce anxiety. I don't know about you, but for me, my daily to-do list is exceptionally long (laughs) and uh, it never goes away, right? I've never hit inbox zero. I don't even have that as a goal. I admire those people who have it as a goal and who've accomplished that, but that's not the case for me. What specificity can do is reduce the anxiety that might come from like this feeling of just keep running and I never actually cross the finish line. I never get the job done. My to-do list is never done. So even though I know that I work hard and I get stuff done during the day, I still have this like chronic feeling of anxiety unless I'm specific with what my goals are and I'm tracking and holding myself Mm. accountable. So- Concretely what that means for me, and this is something I really had to learn during the pandemic, as like my job didn't stop. (laughs) It's just the resources to do it easily and do it well Mm. stopped. And I had to do homeschooling on top of all of that. Like a lot of people can resonate with that, right? So like the anxiety went up and that feeling of dread and like chronically behind increased even more. And so my electronic to-do lists that I always keep and the task management systems that I use with my team, I still use those but I still felt completely overwhelmed. So I went back to an old school piece of paper and was writing Mm. down, okay, this is what I need to do today. And I would try to do that at the beginning of the day. And I would try to do that for a couple days in advance and say like, all right, by by Thursday, if I can get this done, I would consider that a success. So I have been specific with myself about if you do this, you can let go of some of that anxiety so I made that sort of contract with myself. I materialized it. I wrote it down on a piece of paper that I kept on the side of my desk so that I didn't, didn't have to pull up my electronic to-do list. I didn't have to pull up my task management mm. system. I saw it all the time. And then importantly, of course, I crossed out the stuff when I got it done. But when that week past, I didn't rip out the pages so that when I started to feel that, okay, here comes the anxiety, here comes the dread, I would just quickly flip back and be like, yeah, but look at what you did last week. You did the week before, because once we finished, it's out of sight, out of mind. It's off the to-do list and you stop giving yourself credit because it's not as salient. It's not as accessible in Mm -hmm. your mind, the things that you've already checked off. But that feeling of satisfaction and of progress You need that, right, to push through the anxiety and to sustain your motivation. And so for me, I needed to do it by not ripping out last week's to-do list, but by keeping it there, as messy as it looked with all its scribbles and all its cross outs. That helped me to be able to, to breathe a little bit easier, being able to reflect on my past progress.
0: Yeah. Just to add to that, I've had to adopt a similar type of practice. And actually, for me, it's reduced it down to something far smaller, actually. I actually focus on one maximum two priorities for the day and at the end of the day reflect on first of all did I achieve those and also what was my biggest achievement of the day because what I found and I know you've got young kids as well it's almost impossible to remember what happens week by week let alone (laughs) quarter by quarter or year by year. I was having a chat with one of my friends the other day and he was saying he could not remember he wouldn't be able to tell me clearly his what he'd achieved over the previous six months and he's also got three young kids and he runs a business and actually I think what if by just tracking even just what was my biggest achievement of the day you stick you quickly accumulate that and you do get that positive ref- opportunity for reflection I think which sometimes just passes by as life speed by our eyes. And there's always another thing to pick up and, and do. Yeah, so.
1: absolutely. And I think that's a great strategy that you talked about, because we don't need to add more chores to, to our list, focusing on and like making that a goal to focus on the one major accomplishment today yeah. makes it makes that um, suggestion manageable, right? People can implement that. It might be overwhelming. Like, okay, list everything that you need to do today, and manage everything. Like track everything that you need to do today, and maybe you know, that might work for some people. Your strategy might work for other. People. But I think what's important, and what's at the core of this, is that we're not relying on our memory, because, like mm-hmm. I said before, our memories are faulty, and they can do us a disservice. Now, some of us might be really like defensively oriented, more pessimistic people, and our failures. Might loom larger than they should, and that might be what drives us. That might be you know where we find our energy to like do better or do more. That's sadly me. My husband likes a joke. He says, "You always think you're in trouble. Like why? Like why do you do that?" And I don't know. Mm -hmm. Track it back to some of my earliest memories. I always felt like I was in trouble, even when side note, when somebody hit, I was 10 years old, somebody hit me in a car as I was crossing the street, like leaving my elementary school. And I, my first thought was, I'm going to be in so much trouble for this. And I didn't okay. tell anybody. I didn't tell my parents. There was a crossing guard there who told the principal who called my parents. But so that's my earliest memory. I'm going to be in trouble even for somebody else hitting me with a car. I was fine. but And so that's me. Other people though. And so that might, that's the problem with my brain is that I don't give as much attention to the positive experiences or to the successes. Mm-hmm. And I'm really, focusing on on my faults other people though might be oriented the other way god bless them and i wish that was me but either one of those is a problem right because there are ways that we come up short if we're more optimistically focused and there are things that we've done really well if we're more pessimistically focused and we need to keep both of those like sets of examples equally salient to be good personal accountants yeah. of our progress so that's why writing it down or one time another group and i tracked just tracked our daily experiences using an app. We had an app on our phone, ask us a couple times a day, Hey, did you do this thing? That's part of your goal. If yes, what did you do? What was your experience like? And then we did that for a month. And when I, and then I downloaded all the data from my phone of all of my in the moment answers about how was I doing? Did I actually make some progress? Did I work on this thing or not? Since last time my phone asked me and my My overall assessment, like my memory was like, no, I did terribly this month. I did such a bad job on this thing that was like a personal goal that I really cared about. But my phone told me otherwise. My phone actually Mm. said, "You." Put in a lot more time than you remember. Yeah. And actually, your trajectory of experience was increasing. You went from saying, Oh, this sucks. This is awful to, Hey, it's not so bad. I actually did pretty well. And that is not at all what my memory told me, but that's yeah. what the data showed. Whatever system you use to try to increase your accountability, to make sure you got the right information in your brain as you're trying to assess your own progress, just realize that if memory is our only tool, we're probably going to get that wrong.
0: Mm. It's so interesting, isn't it? And it's clearly the, the subject area that you work in. It's not; it's by no means simple. So there's there's some kind of ideas which are, are not contradictory, but there's certainly there's some nuance to it. Because you were talking there about possible possibly dwelling too much on failures, and yet you also wrote that there is some evidence that paying attention to our mistakes can lead to better mental health and positive well-being. How does that actually work? How does that feed into it? And can we? Are we, can we consciously design the way that we think about our work and our lives in order to capture that? It's, it feels that, it feels like in some way, but because it's quite complicated, it would be difficult to pin all of this down.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So two examples that I think you're totally right. First of all, let me acknowledge what you're saying about, about how that might seem like contradictory that like you actually might be better off by focusing on your failures or like giving attention to that. Really? You can feel better about that? Yes. So two examples that at least resonate with me for landing that point. You can think about relationships, personal, family, marital, whatever relation like intimate relationships that you have with people. There's always conflict, right? If you' if you don't have conflict in a relationship, it just means it's not that deep. right? So everybody experiences conflict. How do you move through it? The, the best way to move through it is to say hi, I messed up, I'm sorry. Right? You are acknowledging your mistake. You're saying sorry. And God, if we could all just do that a little bit, if I could do that a little bit more, things would move forward in a much smoother way. Right. So if I could focus on my mistakes, my failures a little bit more than I do, then you can just make better progress. Right. That's and that's how you can improve the health of your relationship. Mm. In another context, another example where I think it makes sense to me is think about a restaurant. You went out to a restaurant. You thought it was great. You got food poisoning. And 24 hours later, you're thrown up and, and all of that now. If you forgot that experience and kept going back to that restaurant and kept getting sick, ordering the same sushi when they're not getting good enough fish, that would be awful, right? So we do need to remember those negative experiences. We don't want to forget those negative experiences. We need to acknowledge them so that we can make better choices. I'm going to stop ordering sushi from the bodega on the street corner because I know that they're not getting good enough fish or they're not moving it through fast enough. So those are two examples that, at least for me, resonate about if we gave more attention, if we could remember the bad outcomes, then we'll make better choices in the future. Now, it's like the devil is in the details. It's psychology, right? Uh, that we don't want to dwell on it. We don't want to continue to beat ourselves up over mistakes that we made if we're talking about intimate relationships and and things that we've contributed to the problems. It, it's not necess- it's not about that. It's not about self-loathing. It's not about rumination. It's about acknowledging, remembering and then making better choices in the future. And that's how you can get to better mental health by recognizing and appreciating and remembering problems from the past. Yeah.
0: So we've focused on the idea of, of narrowing focus.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What does the idea of a wide bracket mean? How does that, ref- you know, how does that help us with longer term objectives?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we can get stuck in a rut right? We just keep going down the same path over and over again. And in some respects, that might be a a positive quality. That might be an example or definition of persistence, but sometimes we have to throw in the towel because it's just not working because that path is just not going to take us to the left when we keep going right. And we need to stop and take a step back and then, and figure out, all right, if this is my goal and this path isn't working, what are the alternatives? We need to expand our choice set. We need to open that bracket up, that the the possibilities. We need to see new ways forward because putting on those blinders and staying so narrowly focused on the goal at some point just just might not work for us anymore. Uh, and that can be challenging for people too. And, and oftentimes it's challenging because people think that's failure. Like giving up is failure and telling me to stop this thing and figure out some other way that means that I failed. And so that could be why we could persistently and doggedly keep going down one path, perhaps longer than is effective or lucrative for us. That would be my suggestion is stop thinking about it as failure. We don't need yeah. to think about it as failure. It's that we need to find an alternative to that same goal that we're working to achieve. We wouldn't call that failure. We would call that creative brainstorming, right? We're turning to turning to another plan. And we should pat ourselves on the back for being able to do that, for that flexibility and that creativity to find another way forward. A great example that I I really love of this is Vera Wang. We know her for her wedding dresses. She's an incredible fashion designer and yeah, and very successful. But that's not where her career started. It actually started in figure skating figure skating. <laughs> like, I had no idea until I started looking into her backstory. That's part of her c- career trajectory. And that seems so different to me than fashion, than fashion design. But she says no, right? So some people might say, when you look at her career in figure skating, she actually was was like really good. She was on the national stage. She was, she was in international competitions, but at some point she plateaued. She didn't become the household name in figure skating that at least she is for design. And she just couldn't get to that top level. And after trying and trying, she realized this is just not it. I'm not going to be the best. So she quit. She quit. Some might call that Failure. Giving up on that career might seem like failure to some, but it wasn't for her. She took a year to regroup and think about what do I want? What is it that's important in my life? What is it that I'm passionate about? And for her, that's the art of line, L I N E. And you can, you are, of course, as you're skating, you are carving lines into the ice, you are drawing lines with your body in space you're also doing that in fashion, right? You are playing with line. You are drawing lines. You're taking advantage of the lines of the human form. You're doing art with line in another way. So that is after a year of trying to figure out what do I love? What's an alternative path to materializing this passion of mine? And she found that in an entirely different domain but for her she never gave up on what her goal was she had been consistently through both of these mediums playing with the art of line to an outsider that might look like okay she failed at one and then luckily she found this other thing that she's like super good at for her there was continuity there and you would only see that you would only realize that continuity if you took that step back you looked at this wider bracket and found those commonalities this alternative path was just a different way of realizing yeah. what her true dream has always been.
0: Yeah. So interesting, is it? You've got so many great stories in, in in the book which illustrate these ideas, and I can't recommend it enough to anyone listening. Thank you so much for your time today. I, just, I suppose, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up?
1: Oh, you know, just just keeping in mind, I think it's really important that, you know, what we've talked about today, in my mind, I conceptualize this as a menu we're not here with a formula. If you do X, Y, and Z, then you will be successful because to me that conveys like, okay, if I didn't, do. I followed your formula and it didn't work out for me. Why is it? Is it something about me? No, we're talking about just expanding our toolkit of possibilities that any one person with any one goal in any one day might find success using this tactic. But when the goals change, the situation changes, the opportunities change, you might need to change course. You might need a different tool. You can't build a house if all you have is hammers. You need to expand the options that are available to you. And that's how I like to think about all of the tips that anybody might give for goal setting some might be better than others science might support some and tell us to shy away from others but they're all just suggestions or they're just tools that you can use to augment a fuller toolkit to help you get the job done
0: emily thanks so much for your time
1: thank you very much
0: and that was my conversation with emily thanks so much for listening there's loads of useful stuff in there but if you want to dig in a bit deeper as I said at the beginning, I've got a link in the show notes to Emily's book, Clearer, Closer, Better. Now, next week, I've got another amazing guest. They just keep on coming. In fact, I've actually got the whole series recorded. We're going to be running all the way through to July in this series. It's going to be the longest one yet. Now, until then, if you have enjoyed listening, love it if you give me a rating. It really does make a difference and help people discover the podcast. Before next week, make sure you check out the newsletter. But until then, have a good one.